0: In the state of Arizona, it is illegal for donkeys to sleep in bathtubs. In the state of Alabama, it is illegal to wear a fake mustache to church that makes people laugh. So if you're traveling to Alabama, watch out. In Michigan, it's okay to boo. Uh, It is illegal for women to cut their own hair without their husband's permission. (laughs) In Texas, it is illegal to sell your eye. In Ohio, our great state, it is illegal to intoxicate a fish. Some laws seem so pointless that they are downright silly. Other laws are bad not for their silliness, but for their injustice, their unfairness. But we all agree still that there are certain laws that are good. Following those kinds of laws leads to our flourishing. So they protect us from harm. They protect us from inequity. So today, the book of Exodus, we get to talk about one of our favorite subjects, a list of rules. How exciting. Rules are everywhere in our society. They're in our laws, like we have talked about. They're at our public pools. Maybe you see that this summer. Rules are even on our phones and computer. You know, those terms and conditions you say that you read, but you never do. Just given the sheer amount of rules that are around us in the mix of silly, bad, and good rules, we have to say that our view of rules is complicated at the very least. Perhaps the most famous set of rules in all of history is in front of us today, the Ten Commandments, literally called the Ten Words. Just like with other rules, people can get tripped up in how to view these ones. Key for us, key for us to understand them is to understand the story in which the Ten Commandments take place. And as we'll see, this story continues all the way down to us. So we're going to pick up our study in the book of Exodus where we left off. We're going to begin in chapter 19, which is on page 60 in the Red Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you. Exodus chapter 19. If you're new to Old Oak or this is your several... However many times you've been here, this is kind of what we do every Sunday. Take a portion of God's Word, read it, try to explain it, see how it applies to our lives. We call that expositional preaching, the main point of the passage being the main point of our sermons. So Exodus chapter 19, page 60. I'm going to read through chapter 20, verse 22, so a little bit longer. Bear with me. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, the jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. We've reached what is the main turning point in the book of Exodus. First half of the book, God rescued his people out of the land of Egypt as they were in bondage there. Now, there's a lot more involved in that, as we've seen. You know, we see the burning bush. We saw the plagues. We saw the Red Sea. But now we come to the second half of the book. God has rescued his people, and now God makes them a people. This is Constitution Day. God makes them not just a people. He makes them his people. He sets up camp with them at Mount Sinai where they'll be for about a year. So keeping the big picture of the story in mind helps us make sense of this passage today. So remember, God has already saved and delivered them, and now he calls them to follow him. It's going to be important to remember later. So the lesson from this is what I think the main takeaway from Exodus 19 and 20 is, So the main point. That's by calling us to obedience, God shows us how to enjoy him and our salvation. By calling us to obedience, God shows us how to enjoy him and our salvation. So within that takeaway is understanding what precedes obedience, what comes before it. Within that main takeaway is understanding the good purpose of God in telling us how to live. So, I pray that the time we spend in this text will cause us to rejoice, cause us to follow our good, redeeming, law giving, and even law keeping Himself, God. So, we'll break down our time by asking two questions. Two questions. First, what does God want for His people? The second question how does the law fulfill or serve that purpose? First question, what does God want for his people? Now, we're going to start our answer to this question by noting the context of chapter 19. So you just take in the whole of chapter 19, and one way you might organize it is seeing Moses' movement. I don't know if you caught this as while we were reading this, but Moses went up and down this mountain constantly. The historic location of Mount Sinai, the mountain is about 5,000 feet tall. Now, it's likely that Israel would have set up camp somewhere midway up the mountain, but still, Moses would have ascended and descended 2,000 feet every time. He did it three times. There's so, needless to say, this, Moses was 80 years old at this point and a mountain climber. Not just a silver sneakers member at the gym. He's like a platinum sneaker, sneakers member at the gym. So, first trip up the mountain, we see Moses going up in verse 3. And then he comes back down again in verse 7. It's during that trip that he gets to hear from God about God's plan for his people. That's kind of the meat of the chapter right at the beginning. And Moses' second trek starts in verse 8. He goes back up again. And then in verse 14, we see him go back down. And that second trip is all about preparing the people to receive God's revelation of himself and to receive God's instruction. All about preparing. And then we see the third trip. Moses goes back up in verse 20, goes back down in verse 25, and that time there's the actual epiphany from the God, smoke and fire. So all this up and down business just shows how much Israel relied on someone to represent them, how much they relied on a mediator to go in on their behalf. More on that a little bit. That's a teaser. So knowing what goes on in the chapter 19, Let's dive into this actual answer to the question. What does God want for his people? So hanging over all of God's purpose and desire for his people is the first thing that he wants. He wants to set up a covenant with his people. He wants to set up a covenant with his people. And we find that word covenant in verse 5. You can spot it there. But really, this is all what's going on in this entire section. When we say God wants a covenant with his people, we say, even more basically, God wants a relationship with his people. Now, you might be asking a very important question at this point, a very logical question. Steve, what's a covenant? Well, I'm glad you asked. A covenant is a special kind of relationship. You can define it like this. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. A chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. Now, you notice how this is different from a contract, right? Because a contract's more impersonal. It's not always voluntary. So, an example of a covenant today would be marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship. A man and a woman choose to enter it, and they make promises to one another. It's Voluntary, binding promises. Now, in the ancient world, the time we're dealing with here, there were several different kinds of covenant relationships, including those between the king and his subjects. It's kind of what's going on here. So from Exodus 19 through chapter 24, it's really the portion of this book that's described as the book of the covenant. So God wants to set up a covenant relationship with his people. Binding promises both sides. But we also see something else. That God wants his people to know what he's done for them. God wants his people to know what he's done for them. So you look at verse 4. It says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Well, this time of year is June, around the end of school time. It reminds me of that classic tradition of writing in other people's yearbooks at the end of the year. You get yearbooks, you try to collect as many signatures as you can, and you write some cheesy thing at the end of the yearbook. And one of the cheesy things that you can write is just this quote, you had to be there. You just had to be there. Because we know how much difference it makes not to just talk about an event, but to have actually lived it and experienced it. Here's something for the people of Israel. Last week, we closed by talking about Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. And Moses had to tell Jethro all that had happened, all that God had did for them, all about the Red Sea and the plagues and how he sustained them in the wilderness. Now, Jethro rejoiced when hearing this, but Israel lived it. Jethro just heard about it. This is what God is telling Israel to do. Remember what he did for them. Now, it's important to know at this point that what God had done for them came before he called them to obedience. It's important to know that order. He did things for them. He redeemed them. And then he calls them to obedience. The God who saved them is now the God who calls them to obey. So what we see here is the same thing that goes on at the beginning of chapter 20. You could turn there. Actually, you don't have to turn there. It's the same page. It's on the Pew Bible. Chapter 20, verse 2. Before God gives any command, what does God say there? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here's grace in the Old Testament. God's grace was the basis and motivation for their obedience. God didn't tell them to obey and then he would save them? No, God saved them, and then he called them to obey. So all the emphasis on the rules of the Old Covenant and kind of the rigidness of the Old Testament, it might make us think that it is graceless. But it's actually the opposite. The entire covenant relationship between God and his people Israel was set up on the basis of grace that God had already saved them. So it's important to remember God's saving love because when we remember it, that's what gets us excited to obey him. That's what makes us grateful. So it's just a natural overflow of our hearts to follow the Lord. Those who have truly received grace, love, and are eager to obey God. It's important to know that order. So what does God want for his people? He wants to set up a covenant with them. He wants them to know what he's done for them. But we'll do a two-for-one to close out here. He wants to bless them, and he wants to use them for his purposes. He wants to bless them, and he wants to use them for his purposes. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19. It says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So again, we're talking about ancient world here, but we can bridge it to ours. In the ancient world, we have monarchies set up where kings effectively owned everything. I mean, if if they had to take eminent domain to take someone's tree lawn to expand the road, there would be a lot less red tape back in ancient times. But even though the kings effectively owned everything, they would have a special treasure set aside. King David had one of these. It's described in 1 Chronicles 29. So the same with God. God owns all the world, as he says, but his people are his most treasured possession. So it's like if you have a ring that's on. You have that entire ring. And what's the most precious part? the jewel or the diamond that's on the ring. So it's interesting, this word treasured possession, we see it later on in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and it's used in tandem with the word for son. Now we might not be kings or queens. We might not have riches. But we know that out of all of our possessions, the most treasured one, if we have them, is children. We can relate to that at that level. When God calls Israel his personal possession, his treasured possession, he calls them his son. So if we see God's desire to bless his people in this way, his treasured possession, we see his desire to use his people in the phrases a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, there are a couple of things you need to know about priests. It's beyond the fact that, you know, today they wear those collar things. I can't remember what they're called. But these priests are different. One thing to know about priests is that they enjoy the privilege of having access to God. So you look at verse 22. They are those who come near the Lord. So another thing to know about priests is that they are go-betweens or representatives. So think about this. Israel, as an entire people, as an entire nation was to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a representative, a go-between, between all of the nations of the earth and God. Represent God to all the peoples of the earth. As an entire nation, this is what they were called. So how is this going to work? Well, we see it even practically. God's going to place the people of Israel right in the belly button of the known world then, right in between Europe, Asia, and Africa. So they're going to be surrounded by the nations. And now these nations could not see the one true God, but they could see Israel. And when they saw Israel, they should have saw the character of God based on how they lived. They should have saw how we are supposed to live for God and treat other people. A model relationship. Israel representing God to the people around them. Now, these are all great things that God wants for his people. But we got to notice something else here. We have to say that Israel will not enjoy the blessing of their relationship with God. It will not be used by God in the way he desires unless they obey him. That's why God started off in verse 5. He says this, if you obey me and keep my covenant, they won't experience these privileges of being God's people without obedience. Their relationship with God was only because of what God did. We'll get that clear. He brought them out of Egypt. They did not bring themselves out of Egypt. But in order for them to enjoy that relationship with God and be used by Him, they needed to respond to God's grace in obedience. Friends, what God wants for His people has not changed. You can keep your finger in Exodus and flip to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. And as you flip there, remember the different phrases used in this passage at the beginning of chapter 19. 1 Peter 2, toward the end of the Bible. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, but you are a chosen priest, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. The same process that works for Israel works for the people in the New Covenant. It's God, not us, who, is, who has established this new covenant. Not just with one nation, but with people from every nation on the earth. And the covenant's based on a better mediator than Moses. He does more than meet, meet us halfway. Jesus is God the Son, come all the way down from heaven to dwell with us. The perfect mediator who can truly represent both parties. He is truly God, truly man. So, God is the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's the grace aspect right there. And it's that gracious act of God that motivates us to proclaim his excellencies as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, why does this matter? Well, at this point in the story for Israel, they'd be really clear on what God had saved them from, right? I mean, they saw it with their own eyes. They experienced life in slavery in Egypt. They saw what God did to the Egyptians as God told them. They'd be really clear on what God saved them from. But they needed to get clearer on what God saved them for. They were clear on what God saved them from. They needed to get clearer on what God saved them for. I would argue that we're not so different. Most Christians are clear on what we're saved from. Saved from slavery to sin. Saved from God's punishment for our sin. Praise God, this is our starting point, absolutely. But less of us are clear on what we are saved for. God has saved us to enjoy our privileged relationship with him. God saved us to enjoy him as his chosen people, his treasured possession. And further, God has saved us from the world so that he can use us in the world. Peter goes on to say in that same chapter, just a couple verses later, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that then when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Christian brother or sister, Do you feel purposeless? Do you feel like you're less than useful? Do you feel like your life might be in a little bit of a rut right now, has nothing for you? The purposes for God saving you, those purposes have not changed. Regardless of what stage of life you are in, if God has saved you, he has those same purposes. For you to enjoy him, for you to be used by him. So, this is a question worth thinking about. This is a question worth discussing. How can the Lord use you where you are at? How can you model for other people God's character? Be his representative? How are you doing enjoying the Lord? This, these purposes are not additional add-ons. For Christians, They are built in for every Christian, not just super Christians. Christian brother or sister, are you living with the right purpose? Are you living with the right purpose? You know, we don't want to beat ourselves up about this, but our ambitions and what drives us, those things often look a lot like the world around us. And we want career advancement, we want fun weekends, we want... Financial stability, we want successful children, we want a comfortable home, we kind of just want to make it by and make it through a week. But at times, our drives and ambitions, we can even model them after the world on purpose. Striving to be more like the world in order to win the world. Now, here we nuance this a little bit. We want to present Christianity in a way that people will understand we want to be able to relate to the world, have some points of context, contact, but we have to know that Christianity will never be cool. Christianity will never be cool. We are meant to be distinct. According to the Bible, our mission is not to be attractive because of our conformity to the world. Our mission is to be attractive because of our distinctiveness from the world. Why should the world believe the message of the gospel if it basically makes us into exactly like they are? Now, we don't want to keep this only at the level of the individual. Having the right purpose, what we are saved for, we can think through this as a people of God, as a church, particularly as a local church. We want to enjoy and worship God together. That's why we call Sunday mornings corporate worship, worshiping God together. We want to represent God, be used by him in our love and in our holiness together. That's why we do things like covenant together, about striving for unity and protecting our witness through, when necessary, church discipline, because we want to preserve a good, we want to represent God well on our whole body life as a church family. So, I'll say this. If you've been with us for some time and you are a Christian and are kind of on the fringe, join us to help us live out this purpose of God as a church. We need more laborers for the harvest. Well, friends, if we feel purposeless or if we have the wrong one, bless you. If we feel purposeless or have the wrong one, it's time to remember our salvation. It's time to remember what God has done for us. King David prays in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba, among the many wise things that he says, he prays that the Lord would renew the joy of his salvation. We must pray that continually. God, renew the joy of my salvation. When there is little wind in our sails, we ask God to thrill us again by his grace. It's grace that gives us that impulse to live for what God has called us to live for. Grace is the starting point so that we may walk in the purposes that God has saved us for. All right, question number two. How do the commandments serve that purpose or really those purposes? The word Torah that word Torah is closer to our word for instruction than it is for our word for law. So instructions are a little more personal, convey more of a helpful tone. A person giving instructions to someone else wants to help that person accomplish something. Now at times, we don't want to be helped. Uh, a true man's man does not need no sneaking instructions to put things together to go somewhere. At other times, instructions confuse more than they clarify. Thank you, Ikea Furniture. (laughs) We said that God wants his people to know what he's done for them, to bless them, to use them for his purposes and for his glory. The Ten Commandments fit all of those purposes. And all of God's instructions really serve those ends to bless his people, that God would use them. So there are a couple of things you should know about the Ten Commandments before we really dive in. One is that they aren't called commandments in the Bible. They're actually called the Ten Words. Ten standing for a number of completeness. Another thing to know is that they are unique within the whole scope of the law. They're the only elements written by God. They're the only one written in stone They're the only part deposited in the Ark of the Covenant. And no, Indiana Jones did not discover it. Now we said that God wants to bless his people. He wants to do that. And the Ten Commandments is a part of that blessing, believe it or not. God blesses his people with the Ten Commandments. We see that in the commandments as a whole. We see that blessing in the commandments in each of its parts. So as a whole... God gave the people direction through these Ten Commandments. So you think about it, God saved them, and he could have just said, Good luck. You try to follow me, do your best, follow the Jiminy Cricket in your hearts, and there you go. As a whole, God's instruction provides direction. God did not leave them to fumble around in the dark he left instructions of how to stay close to him. So we read Psalm 119. This is why the psalmist can say, I love your law because it keeps him close to God. So if you want to know how the commandments are a blessing, just think back previously to a time, Adam and Eve in the garden. God gives them one single prohibition. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we might think that that prohibition restricts that, their freedom. But actually, God telling them not to do that preserves their freedom. It preserves the good things of the garden. It preserves them enjoying God. Friends, God does not tell us to obey Him. and God does not give us guidelines in order to keep good things from us. He tells us to obey Him so that we may continue to enjoy Him. God's instructions show his people how to enjoy him and the freedom he has won for him, for them. That's why the psalmist can say, again like we read, I shall walk in a wide place, a ton of room, a ton of freedom. Why? For or because I have sought out your precepts. God's instruction serves our enjoying his freedom that he's won for us. So God gave the Ten Commandments as a whole to bless his people, preserve them in their freedom. He's won for them. It does that in the whole, and it does that in its parts. So commentator Tim Chester helpfully points out how each of the commandments, in particular, are a blessing from God because he contrasts the rule they had under Pharaoh with the rule they would now have under God. So, example commandments. No longer... Could the powerful have complete power like it was in Egypt? Because now God is over all, nothing before him. No longer could so-called God support the powerful because an invisible God in his name could not be used for selfish gain. No longer is labor unrestrained like it was in Egypt because the Sabbath set limits to production and to work. No longer is family life under the threat of destruction like it was in Egypt because now God calls for respect for parents and integrity in marriage. No longer can the weak be taken advantage of like they were in Egypt because now they are protected from the greed and injustice of the powerful. Each of the commandments are a blessing to God's people. We see this in its whole, we see it in its parts. But the Ten Commandments also serve the purpose God has for his people to use them as his representatives in the world. In the world. So again, notice the very beginning of the commandments. Before any of the commandments are given, what God says. Those very first words. Verse 2. I am the Lord. If they followed what's ahead, Israel would show who God is to the world. They would model his character. They would show what it means to have a relationship with God and what it means to treat people in the way God intends them to be treated. So the commandments as a whole set up a way of life for Israel to be used by God to model his character. A way of life. Their thoughts, their words, their deeds. See, there's all in the Ten Commandments. So, briefly, let's notice this in each of its parts particular commandments. Now, we're not going to say everything we could say about the whole 10, but how Israel would represent God, would show who God is by following each one of these commandments. So first commandments relate to how Israel would think about God. They were to live for no one else besides the Lord. Jesus will say later, all authority has been given to me. They were going to a place where many so-called gods would offer promises of prosperity and pleasure. And so by giving this commandment, God does not acknowledge the existence of other gods, but he acknowledges the allure of other gods. The gods aren't real, but the people who worship them are very much so real. So here is the foundation of any sin right at the beginning of the commandments. The foundation of any sin is to want something else more than God. So if they followed the second commandment, Israel would show something about God. They would show that we only worship God in the way he desires. We only worship God in the way he desires. It corrects the common notion that we worship God in the way we feel is best. That's not the case. We worship God the way he's told us, and the way he's told us in his word. God is jealous, it says, for our right devotion to him. That jealousy is a loving jealousy. He cannot bear to see us go elsewhere. So Israel, by following this commandment, they would show that God cannot be contained by an idol. And what's more, they would preserve themselves because worship of a so-called God through an idol, you ended up worshiping that thing itself. So it's God protecting them, God blessing them. they it to go, how, God will, how Israel would model who God is to the world in each of these commandments. Okay, we've gone to the first two. It's number three. Third commandment, Israel would show that they would represent God well in their speech. When they used God's name contrary of who he is, they would lift up his name as a lie. So this certainly extends to using God's name as an expletive or as a curse word. But it goes even further. Some have pointed out how this command literally translated, you shall not carry the Lord your God's name wrongly. You shall not carry the name wrongly. God had stamped his name on each of his people. So would they represent who he is to the world around them? That's a tall task. Or would they misrepresent him? Fourth commandment, Israel was to show by their actions that they imitated how God acts and how God works. God patterned the Sabbath after his work in creation. So just like they were in the manna, they paused from gathering it, keeping the Sabbath would display in their work and how they viewed their future that they depended on the Lord, something to model for the entire people around them. So there's a shift that comes in the fifth commandment. And the fifth commandment shows that Israel displays God's character, not just by how they relate to Him, but how they treat other people. It's the same balance in all of Scripture. If we want to know how we're doing with our relationship with God, one test is how we're doing with our relationships with people. 1 John 4 Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The first relationship we have with people is the relationship we have with our parents. The first relationship we have with authority is the relationship we have with our parents. If children cannot respect the authority of their parents in the home, not only will society be chaotic, so it's a blessing in that way, but also they'll end up rejecting the authority of their Heavenly Father. So we go on to the next quick commandments, important ones still, So by not murdering, by not committing adultery, by not stealing, by not lying, Israel would show that they uphold the image of God in the people around them. So as this law continues beyond chapter 20, it will show that this means more than avoiding treating our neighbors badly. It actually goes to seeking our neighbors good. Even to the level of how we view them in our hearts. These commands will show, if Israel follows them, that they have a God who cares about people. That's how they will represent him. Tenth commandment. Israel would show by following this, they would show God's character by treating other people well, even at the level of their heart. Do so you think back to King David again? referencing him a couple times. King David's sin. the most infamous one. His sin did not begin when he murdered Uriah. His sin did not begin when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. His sin began when he saw Bathsheba and looked a little too long and desired what was not his and took it for himself. His sin began with a wrong desire. So, How are you doing? I know you're probably tired and strained out from listening, but I'm not talking about that. I assume that. (laughs) How are you doing with these commandments? Are you like the rich kid that Jesus met? You remember him? Jesus talked to him about these commandments. The rich kid said, all these I have kept from my youth. We want to spend time uh, as we close Looking at the purpose of God's commandments for us, the purpose they serve in the larger story. When we ask ourselves how we're doing with these commandments, the answer shouldn't be, you yeah, know, I'm trying my best, but every now and then, you know, I slip up. I'm human after all. No, no, the answer should be something a little more radical than that. The answer should be that we haven't kept any of these. We have not kept any of these. Now, hold on, just one more, I'll explain. You know, there's a reason why the self esteem narrative doesn't work. It's because it forces us to deny something we know is there. That there is indeed something wrong with us, and it's something that is genuinely our fault. We are made in the image of God, yes, but that image is distorted, even at the deepest level. We can lift up the hoods and examine our hearts to find that we are lusters in our heart, that we are murderers in our heart, that we are thieves and coveters. And what's more, that we reduce God, who he is in our hearts, that we disgrace God by our conduct. We do not represent him and that we reject God in our hearts by wanting stuff and ourselves more than him. So one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments is to expose our sin. You know, a couple of summers ago, I went to uh, Israel, and I went to the Dead Sea in Israel. It's a really unique place, lowest place on earth, and it's this sea that has the highest buoyancy because it is a ton of salt in this sea. So much so that when you go into it, you actually float. You could just sit there and float. And so people bring newspapers a lot, and they'll read the newspapers while they're like, just sitting in water. It's crazy. But another thing about the Dead Sea is that as soon as you go into it, you will immediately notice all the little cuts you have on your body. Because <laughs> the salt just enters it. So you could think of the Ten Commandments as sort of like the Dead Sea to examine ourselves. It exposes what we don't know is actually there. So friends, the bad news is worse than we ever thought. Romans 3.20 For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The bad news is worse than we ever thought. But that also means the good news is better than we ever dreamed. The Ten Commandments expose our sin, but then they bring us to Christ. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So where Israel failed to represent God's character as God's treasured possession, even as God's son, where Israel failed to keep God's commandments, Jesus didn't. He followed God's law perfectly. In him there was no sin. Other places called him spotless. Other places call him still, perfect. So if a covenant is a relationship where both sides make promises to one another, then Jesus is the one who kept our side of the bargain in our place. What's more, he's the one who died for all the times we broke our side of the bargain. And friends, this was a part of Jesus' mission. He came, he said, to fulfill the law. Matthew five seventeen. He came to fulfill it. Not destroy it, not maintain it, not preserve it. He came to fulfill the law. And he didn't come just to fulfill part of it. He came to fulfill all of it, including the Ten Commandments. And so now, Romans 6.14, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. We are no longer under the covenant God made with Israel. We are in a new covenant. So ask question. What does that mean? Does that mean we're free to live however we want? It can't be. No. Do we read Jesus saying, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, I fulfilled the law. Happy day, so do as you please. No, we are under now the law of love, the law of Christ, which means we fail to maintain the law of love if we do things like commit adultery or murder or steal, etc. So there's something else we need to see about the purpose of the Ten Commandments within the big story. So what we've seen so far is that they expose our sin. They point us to Christ who fulfilled them, but they also promise something better. So they expose, point, promise. Friends, the new covenant is better than the old covenant, not only because there's a better sacrifice, the once-for-all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. He is a better mediator, and he has fulfilled the law But the the new covenant is better than the old covenant also because the new covenant has better promises. So the old covenant, what's described here? God wrote the commandments on tablets of stone. It's a gracious gift, as we saw, a good gift. But in the new covenant, he gives something even better. He writes the law on our hearts Jesus' finished work on the cross means he fulfilled the law and now sends us his spirit who gives us the desire to fulfill the law ourselves. So this is the promise we read of in Jeremiah 31, that God would forgive our sin and then transform our hearts. So it's like this, spirit writing the law on our hearts. It would be ridiculous for the adults in this room to go to their parents' house And if your parents would have to remind you of the table manners in your parents' house, that would be ridiculous if your parents had to tell you, chew with your mouth closed, and don't get up whenever you want, ask to be excused, and don't belch whenever you want. It would be ridiculous if your parents had to tell you that. Why? Because they told you that at the beginning, so it's just in you now. It's internalized. It's a part of you. It's the same work here. The Spirit writes the law on our hearts. So the law exposes our sin, points us to Christ. Even though we violated the law at our very core, we wanted us more than God, because Jesus is in our place, God receives us despite the way we are. But when God receives us despite the way we are, he does not intend to keep us the way we are. He shows grace by saving us, and he shows grace by changing us. He does that by giving us a spirit who gives us the desire to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, like we read in Romans 8. Do so you notice the end of our passage? Chapter 20, verse 8. Israel stands in the fear of God. Here they were, 50 days after God had saved them. They were now confronted by God's power. Fast forward. The day of Pentecost. 50 days after Jesus had died to save his people. And the disciples were confronted by God's power. But they were not confronted by God's power and feared, they were filled with God's power and they boldly followed him. That same power dwells in us, friends so that we may follow the God who has redeemed us, so that we may enjoy the God who has redeemed us by obeying him, and we may make his name known. So our hymn writers that we mentioned last week, John Newton, William Cooper, put it like this. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into a choice. We choose to obey the Lord who has saved us, and to enjoy him, be used by him. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for what you have done for us. And there's so much to say about what you've done for us. We are thankful that we are no longer under your condemnation. And we confess, God, that we have rejected you at the very core of our hearts and we are so thankful that Jesus bore the punishment for our sin and fulfilled the law in our place. And we are even more thankful that now we have a desire to follow you and we want that desire to increase. We need more power to obey you because, God, we, parts of us still love sin. Parts of us still love the world. So, God, Fill our hearts so that we may walk in the law of love, the law of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.